Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for this day that you've given us. God, we thank you for small things like an opportunity to wake up in a safe place with a warm breakfast. We thank you for the big things like the salvation that is ours in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, we thank you that we can be surrounded this morning by a group of people who who want to encourage us, who want to come alongside us. Lord, we thank you for our churches that we will go home to that will come alongside us and love us and, and care for us and shepherd us well. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this week to be honest about who we are and where we are. And God, we thank you that that you know us. And again, in Jesus, you draw near to us for eternal salvation. We pray these things once again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, guys, just reviewing real quickly kind of where we've been. This week, we've been talking about life. And life is a big thing, but but life is also something that I think we can understand, recognizing that life is good and life is also hard. Um, Life is something that we enjoy, but also something sometimes that we dread. Uh, Life is full of things like obedience and sin and and joy and sorrow and confidence and anxiety. Life is, is, is just complicated. Life is complicated because of who we are. Life is complicated because of who everyone else is. Life is complicated because of what the planet is. Part of what we've been doing this week is just trying to to be honest about what our life and experience is. And recognize that for all of the ways that it is legitimately good, it is also not perfect. And so we've had some ground rules this week that we've gone over every day. And I want to just remind you of those one more time. We need to remember that in Scripture it is clear that our mess, our sin, our guilt, our sorrow, our discouragement, our disappointment, our confusion, our anxiety, our mess is real and is eternally significant. Here's what I want to encourage you toward. Honesty. Not necessarily an honesty with every single person, but an honesty with the people that know you and love you and care for you, an honesty with your friends and your family and maybe the leaders in your church, an honesty that says, you know what, my mess is real. And here's here's part of what my mess looks like. Part of what we're doing this week is, is just kind of putting that on the table, being willing to say our mess is real and it matters. The second thing we've said is is that our mess is both internal and external, right? The mess is out there somewhere, that's true. But the mess is also right here in my heart, in my head, in my life. And because our mess is real, because our mess is everywhere, our mess is too big for us to actually adequately address. We can't, remember, wrap our arms around it. We can't get control of it. We can't even know it perfectly, which means we certainly can't deal with it well. But there's good news, and we've seen that good news already two times this week. We're going to see it again in another powerful, beautiful picture that Ezekiel gives us. It's this, our mess is something that God moves toward in and through Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Okay? 
Because God knows who we are. He knows where we are. He knows what we're like. He knows how messy we really are. He knows how desperate our situation really is. He knows the rejection that we feel. He knows the distance that we endure. He knows all of the confusion that constantly runs through our minds and through our hearts. He knows the mess that you feel right now, maybe in your stage of life as you're growing up physically, thinking, well, am I supposed to be taller or shorter? Why do my muscles not look like that guy? Maybe I should have broader shoulders. Maybe I should have narrower shoulders. Maybe I, why do I have freckles? Why do I not have hair? No, that's me. Um, okay, God knows that kind of stuff about you. And what we are promised in Scripture is that God moves toward our mess, every part of our mess, every kind of mess, in and through Jesus Christ and the Gospel. God knows what we need. And that's good news because it's not just that God comes alongside and says, wow, I know that's really hard. God says, I know that's really hard, and here's what I'm going to do for you in and through my Son, your Savior. Lastly, and we just need to understand that every part of our salvation is tied to the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we've, we've reminded you of that every day. We'll come back to it again today. Salvation is whose work? God's work. Okay? So with that in mind, let's uh, read a little bit uh, about another word picture that God gives to Ezekiel and to us in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. Okay, so Ezekiel 37. We looked at Ezekiel 36 where God says, we are dirty and He will cleanse us. We looked at Ezekiel 34 which said, we are lost sheep but God will find us. And here in Ezekiel 37 we get another really wild word picture, description of what we are like and what God will do. Okay? I'm going to start reading in Ezekiel 37 verse 1. This is God's word for you and for me. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and, you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Okay, so if Tuesday we were talking about dirty people being cleansed, if yesterday we talked about lost sheep being found, today we're talking about what? Dead people being raised to life. Okay? Now if we think about that, I want to begin today with a shocking death. A shocking death that had an incredible influence on my formation in childhood. The death of the beast. You guys were totally thinking I was going to talk like a family member. Uh, Yeah. No. So you think about Beauty and the Beast, right? We're introduced to this story where kind of a, a funny dude who's a inventor, um, he wanders off into the wilderness on his way to like a craft fair, and he gets lost, and so he runs into a castle, and he gets taken captive by that guy. And because he gets sick there in the dungeon, his, his daughter, who, who is, you know, like a nerd, um, but a compassionate nerd, um, she decides to take his place. So here she is, locked in an enchanted castle with a guy who legitimately is selfish, immature, petty, controlling, rude, and pretty ugly to look at. There's a sense in which when Bell first meets Beast, he is spiritually dead. It's kind of a cool switch. Anyway, that's not to the point. Um, they fall in love as the movie goes along. And he actually releases Belle from her captivity back to her father who is sick, right? But he gives her a what? A mirror. A mirror. And so at some point, when Belle's father is made fun of, she says, no, 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 the beast is real. And she says, here, look. And then Gaston, that great stand-up guy, He then whips the crowd into a fever pitch. They all grab pitchforks and shovels and hatchets and axes and torches, and they go storm the castle, right? And we're thinking, well, this is is odd, but Beast is a big, gnarly dude. Everything's going to be fine. And then, right toward the end of the movie, Gaston stabs Beast in the back, and he falls down dead. Now let me tell you, as a six-year-old Matthew sitting in the theater watching that, I'm thinking, (gasps) and then to make matters worse, what happens? The last rose petal falls. And and in this desperate moment, which is probably only seconds, Belle is heaped over his dead body and she says what? I love you. All hope is lost. He's dead. He's gone. She's crying. The rose is empty. Beast is really, really dead. Until something remarkable and marvelous and super, truly supernatural happens. 
Keep that in mind as we think about this in Ezekiel chapter 37. Okay? So what's our mess? Well, it's pretty simple, (laughs) but profound. We are dead. God gives Ezekiel this vision. It says that Ezekiel is taken out to a valley in the Spirit of the Lord. That's the Bible's way of saying that a prophet is given a vision by God. Okay, That happens again in the book of Revelation with John. So in the Spirit, Ezekiel is taken out to this valley. And what is the valley full of? Bones. Okay? If you're seeing bones, you either have a really bad fracture or something is dead. In this case, it's not just something that's dead. It's someone who is dead. And it's not just one person. It's how many people? More than can be counted. It says later that it's an exceedingly great army worth of people. But there's some interesting descriptions about these bones that Ezekiel gets that I think it's important for us to understand. Because God, again, is underlining something for us. He wants to make sure we understand our condition really, truly for what it is. So what do we see here about the bones? Well, first, they are really, really dead. It's not just that they're a little dead, they're really dead. Why do I say that? Well, in verse 2, it says that... They're on the valley surface and they are very dry. That basically means that whatever has been dead, whoever has been dead, has been dead for a long time. There is no chance at life. We also see here that the bones are super scattered. They're all over the face of the valley. So it's not just like you have a neat skeleton here and a neat skeleton there and a neat skeleton here. You've just got skulls and femurs and ribs all over the place. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. That's what Ezekiel sees. You've got some teeth and some jaw bones and a tibula and a fibula. They're just It's an explosion of very dead bones. So they're scattered. It's interesting, isn't it, thinking about scattered. That's actually come up over and over and over again here in Ezekiel. The sheep were what? They were scattered all over the place. Here the bones are scattered all over the place. It also says that they're very dry, which underlines the fact again that they're really, really dead bones. In case you didn't know this, you need more than just your skeleton to be alive. There are no muscles or tendons or or sinews or anything that holds the bones together and makes them move. Again, God doesn't really need to tell us this when He says they're bones, but He's helping us understand just how much death Ezekiel is seeing here. How desperate this situation really is. And most importantly, we learn at several stages as I read that these bodies are not only dry bones, they not only lack all the other components of life, they actually lack the breath of life. I want to read for you just briefly from Genesis chapter 2 and to help you understand how important this is when it comes to being alive. Okay, Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 says this, 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Again, it's kind of something we already know. But you can have a skeleton with all of its bones and all of its muscles and all of its tendons and all of its internal organs and all of its hair and all of its fingernails and but you still don't have life. You just have a body. And God says and underlines for us that these bodies do not have life. What's the point? God is telling us through the prophet Ezekiel that spiritually speaking, not just physically, but but spiritually speaking, we're dead. That's a desperate condition. Because things that are dead can't magically whip themselves back up into life. Some of you have already endured death. Maybe the death of a family member. Maybe something as simple, but as profound as the death of a pet. And no, ma- no manner of longing or, or working or, or prayer or anything is going to create life. Some of you have perhaps experienced already again at your young age just just the reality of, of the death that you feel inside sometimes. Of the way that life leaves you feeling cold and empty and desperate. That's what we're getting a picture of here in Ezekiel 37. In addition to being dead, we learn in this passage of Scripture that we're also hopeless. It says that the people of God in in this time and in this place are saying that their bones are dried up and that their hope is lost. Um, I love good stories. I love to read good books. I love to watch great movies. We've talked about some of those already with the Chronicles of Narnia and the Avengers. Do you know why we love great stories? Ultimately, because God has given us the story. But we also love great stories because they give us hope and they give us heroes. They give us a future that we can sort of hang on to in the midst of our present circumstances. These people here in Ezekiel 37, and I fear many of us in our daily lives, we feel as though our hope is lost. And let me just be really honest with you, somebody again who's a little bit ahead of you, the older you get, the more this world, this messed up world, will try to take that hope away from you. Because see, right now, some of you, your hope is tied to your academic ability. You're getting ready to go into high school, some of you, and you're already thinking about your GPA, and you're going to start thinking about the ACT and the SAT, and getting into college, and getting a scholarship, and getting a great job. And and so your hope is kind of tied up in that stuff, right? 
But what happens when you don't make the grades? And when you don't get the acceptance letter? The messy world that we live in begins to take away your hope. Some of you, your hopes right now are tied up in your physical ability. Maybe you're a little bit taller than everybody else. You're a little bit faster than everybody else. You're a little bit stronger than everybody else. And so you're thinking, okay, I'm going to get into high school. I'm going to do the varsity thing. I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to make millions of dollars. Let me just tell you, the percentage of people that actually go professional in sports is about that many. And even the people who make it into the league... Many of them don't often end up rich and satisfied. In fact, very few of them end up rich, and I would argue that none of them apart from Christ ever end up satisfied. And so the world, again, strips away our hope. Some of our hope is tied to our physical appearance. Right now you think, I'm a stud. Or you think, well, other people are telling me that I'm beautiful, and I'm getting a lot of attention, Right? So your hope is in drawing other people in and, and being told, you're so pretty, you're so incredibly, I'm so, no, I'm not handsome. Dudes don't tell each other that. Man, you're handsome. You're so Like, dude, you're ripped. You're ripped. You're punk. Uh, okay? I love it. Every guy who poses for a football picture always poses like this. It's always like that. I'm like, come on. Everybody has a neck. Um, anyway, but that's where your hopes are. In being considered the pretty one, the cool one, the handsome one, maybe the funny one, the smart one, the fast one, the older you get, the world is just going to take that stuff away from you. And here in Ezekiel 37, the people of God, the people of Israel, because of disobedience, because of hardship, because of invasion, because of captivity, their hope is lost. They don't see a future for themselves. And so often, neither do we. What else is the mess? Well, they're separated from satisfaction, contentment, and everything that slightly resembles life. And they know it. Again, I want to be careful. But I'm guessing that there are some people in this room that you've already started to think this way. My life feels dry. My life feels empty. My life feels hopeless. My life feels dark. My life is empty of satisfaction and contentment. And and I actually don't feel like I'm alive at all. Can I just say this to you very honestly? If If that's where you find yourself, I want you to do something for me. By God's grace, I want you to listen carefully to what God does in our lives, but I also want you to do this. If that's really where you are, I want you to talk to your youth leader today. Not because he or she's going to have all the answers, but because God has given us the church for our encouragement and because we can find helpful resources together. Okay? One of the most dangerous things in the world is for us to be isolated. So that's our mess. God's honest about it. Ezekiel sees it through this incredible word picture that is a dried up valley. It's kind of like being in biology or science class, right? Um, Anybody actually have a skeleton in their science class? I think most of us know what we've seen. My skeleton was in my 10th grade biology class in high school, and it was kind of creepy because it was a real human skeleton. 
and we only knew that it was from Vietnam. Okay? So every day you walk into biology class, here's this, you know, pretty small human skeleton hanging from its head just like that with its brain taken out through a big saw in its skull. Um, okay? When I walked into biology class every day of 10th grade, you know what I didn't expect to have happen? I didn't expect for that skeleton to go, you know, this screw in the top of my head's kind of hurting. Could somebody take that out for me? Why? Because that person was dead. Long dead. And those bones, even though they weren't scattered, there wasn't any life in them. That's not how it works. God is driving home the point for us that we have a big problem that we cannot fix. That our problems are real, they are desperate, they are ugly, and they are impossible from a human perspective. But, what does God do here? What does God do? God brings us hope. How? Because God brings us life. I love what God does here. He begins by <laughs> He begins by asking Ezekiel a question. The actual question is, Son of man, can beast bones live? So he, he brings Ezekiel out into this valley, and it's just filled, again, with these scattered bones that are very dry. And maybe Ezekiel starts walking, and they're just crunching underneath his feet into powder. Ezekiel gets a big perspective on what's there in front of him. And then God says, hey, Ezekiel, question for you. Can these bones live? Now you know Ezekiel in his head is thinking, (laughs) uh, but what does Ezekiel actually say? God, you know. I love that answer. That is such a beautiful, dependent answer. God, you know what you're going to do. So often in life, that's where you and I need to be. We look at our circumstances, they feel impossible. They are impossible from our perspective. There's no life there. But you know what? We can say in faith, God, you know. God, you can do what you choose to do. And so what does God do? Well, God recreates life from the ground up. It says that the bones first are gathered together. You know this had to be an awesome scene for Ezekiel to see. Because they're scattered, right? And and there's multitudes of them. As Ezekiel begins to speak, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, as Ezekiel begins to prophesy over these bones, what happens? They start, they start to rattle and shake. And then I, they start to like fly through the air toward each other. You've got to know the dude's like dodging like leg bones and like stepping back as a rib cage comes flying past him. They're connecting to each other into big skeletons. So they all gather together. The bones take on tendons and muscles. And this is probably kind of gross to watch this happen. But it's cool. Because the, the skeleton's all like... 
And then it's, I don't know what happens. Maybe it's like growing or like slurping or I don't know. They get bones and, and then they get muscles and tendons and skin and organs. And then they actually receive the breath of life from God and they stand up. That'd be the freaky moment, right? Because they're like laying there and they're covered in skin and muscles and we're like, okay. And then it's just like... (gasps) They stand up and there's a bunch of them. God really, truly brings these dead bones to life. And He renews hope. Somebody said that. I'm really glad that was the first thing that came to mind, that God gives us hope. Even in the midst of impossible, desperate circumstances, God brings hope. Now what's interesting too is that God repeatedly promises this return to life. There are a few things I want to take note of, but before we get there, think about it this way. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Um, anybody read all the books? Okay. Anybody watched all the movies? Okay, yeah, there we go. So in Harry Potter, there's a character named Dumbledore. He's kind of important because he's the headmaster of the school where Harry and his friends go to school. Um, at some point in the books and also in the movies, we learn that Dumbledore has a pet. What's his pet? It's a, a phoenix. What's the phoenix's name? Fox. So Fox is a phoenix. And there's this beautiful scene where Harry walks into Dumbledore's office. This is in the movie, so if you've seen the movie. And Fox is not looking so good. In fact, he kind of looks old and his feathers have fallen out. And all of a sudden, the phoenix catches fire and becomes a pile of ashes. (laughs) I think Harry even says something like, I'm sorry about your bird. So it literally just goes, woof. Clump. <laughs> now, if you and I are looking at that, we're like, well, time to get a new one. I hope he was good while he lasted. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. Not my fault, man. Um, but what's amazing about this is that the mythological creature that is a phoenix does what? It rises from the ashes. And so this small little immature bird begins to rise from the ashes while Harry's standing there. That's sort of what God is doing here in Ezekiel 37. It's it's the moment where all we see is a pile of ashes. We see nothing. We see no life, no hope, no future. Everything good that we once knew has been reduced to ashes. But God brings life. What are we going to take note of today? First, remember that it is God that does all the work here. Now God uses Ezekiel here. And we're going to look at that. But what does God do? Look at verse 5 again. What does He say? Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Right? 
God is doing the work. Later in verse 12, God promises Israel and to us, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Let me just ask you a a very quick and I think clear question. What can dead people do? Nothing. Nothing. They can lay there and they can rot. I realize that's a graphic picture. That's what dead people do. So, if dry bones are going to come back to life, who's going to have to do that work? God. Who else is going to have to do that work? God. Anybody else? Yes, God. God does the work of salvation. You and I contribute nothing but our deadness. Okay? Now what's cool about this passage in particular is that God actually repeatedly promises to do the work before He actually does it. This is how God works in really the whole Bible. God loves to make promises and He loves to keep promises. And for us that's good news because we live in this strange tension of seeing that God has already given us Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. But God also has these promises that are sort of outstanding to us. Be encouraged because guess what? Every promise God has made, He has kept. So what does that mean? Every promise God has made for our future, He will keep. God makes and keeps promises to us as His people. And these are significant promises because these are resurrection promises. These are new life promises. These are eternal promises. You're young. You are strong. You are beautiful. You are smart. You are, for some of you, you come from wealthy families. You're going to have great successes in this life. But guess what? You will also meet with great disappointment. And one day, you will die. We need great promises. We need a great future. And God is promising to give us that in and through Christ. Now here's what's interesting that I haven't mentioned yet about Ezekiel 37. You probably picked up on it as I read. How does God actually raise these people? How does God do that work? God says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. Then God says to Ezekiel, what? Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. To me, that sounds a whole lot like what? Sounds a lot like creation, God using His Word to create life. It's also a lot like preaching. Ezekiel is preaching to a valley of dry bones. He is declaring the Word of God over this valley, this desperate, empty death valley. What happens later? Well, there's no breath in the bodies. Then God says in verse 9, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God. Again, God says, Ezekiel, I want you to go preach to those dead bodies. And the breath of life will enter them. God raises the dead here in Ezekiel 37 through the proclamation of His Word and the work of His Spirit. 
God's methods for bringing life have not changed. You know how God brings us to life? By the preaching and teaching of His Word and the work of His Spirit in our lives. Do you know why you're here this week in this class and in that class and in that large group? By God's grace, to hear the Word of God so that God might use it by His Spirit to create life in you and in me. That's how God works. It's always how God has worked. Somebody said it sounded like creation. Why? Because God's Word went forward in creation and guess what happened? Life happened. I mean, seriously. Just think about that. God said, let there be light. Boom! There's light. And when God, through the proclamation of His Word, through the faithful preaching that many of you receive at your churches, through the faithful conversations that you're having with your small group leaders, through the faithful parenting of those that love you in homes, God is bringing life out of death. It's not sexy, but it's it's the way He works. Okay? That freaks some of you out. Sometimes it's just normal conversation. Sometimes it doesn't look like a multitude coming to faith. Sometimes it looks like one person over a cup of coffee. But this is how God brings life from death. My application here for you is to be dedicated by God's grace to the way He normally works. Put yourselves in places where you can be surrounded by people where you can constantly hear the Word of God and constantly lean into what the Spirit's doing. One of the last things I want to say here as we kind of draw things to a close is that what's pictured for us in Ezekiel 37 has both spiritual and physical meaning for us. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of what we've been talking about is the new life that God gives us spiritually. We've talked about this already. If any man wants eternal life, he has to be born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? We understand that our hearts are dead because of sin. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul clearly says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That is a spiritual death to life transformation that happens as the gospel goes forward. It is real, it is lasting, it is essential for every young man and young woman in this room. And we will only find it in Jesus. But there's also a very real sense in what Ezekiel sees is a physical promise to God's people. When God says to them at the end of this chapter, I will open your graves, I will raise you up to new life, yes, that's talking about our hearts, that's talking about our relationship with God, but it is also really, truly, fully talking about our bodies. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Don't don't be confused about those who have already died. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and all those who are still alive will go to meet them in the air, and we will be forever with the Lord. Guess what? You and I will have real, physical bodies in the resurrection that is to come. 
God will bring us in every sense to new life, such that our bodies will reflect the new spirits that He has given us, and they will be perfect. I really hope that you get to walk up to me one day in heaven and say, Hey man, you taught one of my elective classes at RYM, and I'm going to go, Yes, I did. (laughs) Our bodies will be perfect. That's a good, healthy promise. I actually don't mind not having hair. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, And how is God going to do this? Well, we, we see and we get a beautiful picture of this. Okay? The older you get, the more time you spend in Scripture, you're going to realize that there are just constant parallels between the Old and New Testament. That's on purpose because God is ultimately telling one story. In John chapter 11, I spoke on this actually last year if you were at RYM and in one of my classes. In John chapter 11, Jesus is interacting with a scene of death. Lazarus, one of his very best friends, has died. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, are very confused. They're very sad, obviously. And Jesus, he delays so that Lazarus actually dies. And then he shows up on the scene after Lazarus has been dead long enough to actually be like stinky. So Lazarus isn't just dead, he's stinky dead. And his sisters who are grieving, they know this. But what does Jesus do? He moves into this situation and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proceeds from that moment to move toward the grave, have them roll the stone away, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And you know there had to be people standing around that day going... Yeah, right, Jesus. Good one. But then here he comes, wrapped up all in his grave clothes, hopping up out of the grave. And then, they're, then they probably freaked out and ran away. Yeah. Jesus has that kind of power. He displayed it during his earthly ministry. And a good pastor friend of mine said that he had to be specific in John chapter 11 and say, Lazarus, come out, because one day he's just going to say, come out, and everybody's going to come out. <laughs> That's real. That is actual. That is factual. That is going to happen. In the same way that God, through the work of Jesus, brings us to new spiritual life, He's going to bring us to new physical life, and it will all be better forever. That's how God is going to eternally address our mess. So where do we end? We're going to end with two people that I I know and love. This is Dr. Ken Hay. He founded a Christian camp organization that is celebrating their 50th summer uh, this year in the North Carolina mountains. Uh, Dr. Hay was my very first mentor in ministry. I was a 19-year-old college student thinking that the Lord might be calling me to ministry in some way, shape, or form. And and in his 70s, he invited me into his home, into his office, and into his life to just kind of help me begin to understand what it looked like to serve the Lord full time. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And because he loved me. 
And he was intentional, he was deliberate, he was welcoming, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was organized. He was a picture of Jesus for me. This is Stanley Long. I think this picture is actually in Malaysia. But Stanley was another one of my earliest mentors in ministry. Stanley worked for a smaller Christian camp organization in Roanoke, Virginia called Camp Eagle that primarily ministered to, uh, ministers to inner city kids. Kids who have no experience with the gospel and very little experience with the outdoors. Stanley showed me what practical compassion looked like. Stanley has a wonderful sense of humor. Stanley is an incredible man. He has nine children. My greatest memory, one of my greatest memories in my entire life is me and Stanley sitting down at Big Cedar. That's what we call our campfire area. It was probably past midnight. We had just been talking and laughing and throwing stuff in the fire and goofing off. And, and he said, all right, man, you ready to go up? I said, yep. He said, hop on the back. It was a four-wheeler. So I get on behind him. I'm grabbing onto the luggage rack on the back of the four-wheeler. And, man, he just lets her fly. He power slides around the fireplace hits the gas, and we literally jump. Two 200-plus pound men jump onto the soccer field. And we go flying across this thing at like 70 miles an hour. It was a great memory that night. Why do I tell you about these two men? Because in God's providence, both of these men died in the last year. I know that's a quick turn. Let me just tell you, as a 34-year-old man, it, it's kind of scary when people that you know and love and people that have shaped you in transformational ways are no longer here. In some ways, it was expected in Dr. Hay's life because he was 87 years old. His mind had begun to slip and God was, was faithful to take him home at an old age. But we still grieve the fact that he's no longer here. His wife grieves the fact that he's no longer with us. Stanley's situation was a little bit different. He's only 53 years old. He wake up, woke up one night, went to the restroom, coughed a little bit, got back in bed, and he was gone. My great hope... And my sure knowledge is that when Jesus Christ returns, both of those men will be raised up from the grave. Why? Because they will not only experience physical resurrection. By God's grace, they both experienced spiritual resurrection. God worked in their hearts to bring them from a place of death to life in Jesus. And what He has done spiritually in them, He will do physically when He returns. If you leave with nothing else this week, know that God can raise anyone no matter how dead they are. If this week, if in your life, if when you return home you are feeling lost and unclean and dead. Know again, you are exactly where you need to be for God to work powerfully in and through Jesus Christ. Because He accomplishes the work of salvation and He delights in it for His glory and our good. Okay.
We've officially finished up. It is 10.30. Let me pray for us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Let me pray for us, and uh, you'll be off to your second elective. Heavenly Father, how good you are. God, you show us what we're really like. And and to be honest, it's kind of scary because we try to hide that stuff. But you tell us, hey, you are dirty, you are lost, you are dead. But God, you don't leave us there. You don't just give us the bad news, you give us the good news and you say, I'm going to clean you up, I'm going to come after you, and I am going to really, fully, in every sense of the word, raise you to new life. God, do that work in our lives today. God, come after, get a hold of the young men and the young women in this room. Show them your love. Use your word and spirit to not only encourage their hearts and their minds, but to change their lives and our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you were dismissed. Thanks again.